Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of Flightcast. This is an aviation podcast that was inspired by a mobile flight simulator. I'm your host, Jason Rosewell, and the aviation world, as I've learned, is a small one. Almost two years ago, Flightcast first aired on August 6, 2015, with a simple mission, bring more awareness to the mobile flight sim, Infinite Flight. Fast forward two years, 49 episodes, and hundreds of thousands of listens later, Flightcast has evolved into more than just a show about a simulator, and into a full-fledged aviation podcast. With guests ranging from real-world private and airline pilots, FAA and U.S. Air Force air traffic controllers, and Infinite Flight developers, our mission is always evolving as we endeavor to bring listeners great aviation content. Not only have we been inspired by stories from guests like Steve Thorne, Angela Sells, and Dion Mitten, but Infinite Flight and Flightcast have given me opportunities to make lasting friendships that I will cherish forever. As I've said before, aviation seems to be in my blood. My grandfather, Chuck Rainey, owned a Piper PA-11 Cub on floats that I was recently able to track down to a storage facility an hour and a half from my house. My grandfather passed away when I was two years old while attempting to ferry an Aronka Champ from our home airport in Parry Sound, Ontario, so being able to see his log entries for the Cub was a surreal and profound moment for me. If we go back a little further, my great-grandfather, Chuck's father-in-law, was a pilot officer for the Royal Canadian Air Force starting May 1944. He piloted and navigated on the short Sterling, a four-engine heavy bomber in the Second World War. For our 50th episode, we're going back in time to pay tribute to the men and women in my family that shared my passion for aviation. To do that, I spent an evening with my grandmother, Donna Ketchison, someone her many grandchildren and great-grandchildren simply refer to as Nanny. Nanny makes my favorite spaghetti, and every time I eat it, it brings me right back to my childhood. I asked if we could make it together, and if she would give me a little family history lesson as well. So do you, you came up with this spaghetti recipe just on my own, throwing somehow. things together yeah, in you a can, pot? Yeah, you're inside out? Oh, no. Yeah. I don't know how I came by it. It's been so many years. Well, you were just a little kid. So it was before that. I can't remember how it started. Nanny was married to a man named Charles Rainey, who most people referred to as Chuck. His grandchildren called him Papa. Well, let's talk about Papa first and then we'll... Okay, well, let's come to this clean end of the table. Okay. Because I have a birthday present for you. Oh, you didn't have to get me a birthday present. I know, I usually don't, but th- I thought this was appropriate. This is all you... I'm not... Oh. oh, did you do a little scrapbook? Oh. Papa. Papa. When he was a little wee boy, I don't have the picture here, but when he was smaller than that, 
there was a plane going, his mother told me this, there was a plane going overhead, and he pointed up and he said, one day I'm going to do that. This is his first solo, that was August 1969. And that has to be on wheels, his solo would be on wheels, right? No, it was floats. Really? He did. Mm -hmm. He soloed first on floats? That's he learned on floats. Oh, cool. There's his cross country, right here. Oh, so he flew in Lima Alpha, India, for his cross country. That looks like a... That's not a cub, I don't think. Oh, maybe it is. I'm not sure. And that this is his yes. own plane? Mm-hmm. That was the first one, I think. Oh, that's this one. That's Mike Yankee Foxtrot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of Mike Yankee Foxtrot, let me show you something. There it is. How do you have that? I tracked this airplane down. I made lots of calls and sent lots of emails, and I was about to write a handwritten letter because... Because remember we talked about it at... Aunt, Auntie Beth's house, I said, you know, when I got my tattoo, I said, mm -hmm. I think it's a guy named Brian Grant. And you oh, said, yeah. well, that makes sense. And Bob Grant. Bo oh, Bob, yes. Bob so Grant Bob Grant. Him. Okay. So it moved to a few people. Then it went to this guy, Brian Grant, who's on the registry of the airplane registry. I, uh, I called him at work, Brian. And I said, you know, I'm looking for this airplane. He said, yeah, I have it. And I, so we talked about it a little bit and he said, yeah, I've heard about your grandfather. Here's a picture of it on the beach. Wow. Anyway, I, I said, uh, you might be able to help me. I, I'm looking, f I'd love to get, um, apparently his log book went with it. And uh. he said, yeah, I've got every log your grandfather ever logged. Anyway, I'm trying to get copies of it because he said he'd make me copies. You won't be able to read his writing anyway. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the Ronka Champ, I guess, right? That he was flying? I believe so. It was... You could tell by those letters. Yeah, we did look it up once did at you? my place, I think, okay. when we were chatting about it. And I think it was an Aronka champ. That sounds right. I know oh. he had an Aronka something. Yeah. So, what was the story that you got with this... I was with him. What? Apparently. I was supposed to... People said I was with him. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I guess you wouldn't be here to tell the story. He asked me to go. It was a Sunday. It was Father's Day. Yeah. That year. And I said, well, I don't think I will. I've already contacted Lee and, and made plans to go up there for the day. Oh. So I would have been with him. So you weren't at home either? No, oh, I was in Sundridge. The oh. whole fam family came up to Sundridge. I was, I was in Lee's front room next to the outside door, and I could see the driveway, and I was, I was playing her piano at the time. I was playing... Uh, first... playing that and all of a sudden I looked out and I could see one of my kids cars coming up the driveway I thought oh they've been out they're gonna come in here and another car behind them and then another car behind them and I thought what the heck is going on and then Charlie and Grace Swartwood got out of the car oh did that tip you off hmm something's right here <laughs> they were the pastors of the church at the time yeah they rounded up all the kids and they came up and I fell down. That uh, after all this time, it's a little easier to talk about. I remember. Yeah. Imagine. This June the twentieth, thirty-five years. So yes. What was the so other than the fact that they got it wrong and they thought you were in there? 
what what was the story that you heard from what happened with the crash? It was pilot error. They 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 um, I don't know not that picture, but the was it the MOT or whoever those yeah, people are? DOT. They they inspected it. They always have to. Yep. They inspected the plane very very thoroughly to see if it was mechanical failure or pilot error. And they concluded there was nothing wrong with the workings of the plane itself that caused it. Mm. So they put it down to pilot error. Here we're looking at photos of the Aronka champ that crashed, taking Papa's life. I've heard two versions of the story of my Papa's last flight. One version is that the champ had been sitting for quite a while and the engine had failed on takeoff, where Papa tried to turn back to the runway without enough altitude and stalled the wings, bringing the aircraft down. The other version that Nanny was given was that he climbed too steeply on takeoff, causing the airplane to stall in spite of a working engine. The latter version checks out with Transport Canada's findings, as well as Papa's tendency to push the flight envelope and the fact that the airplane crashed so closely to the end of the runway. Ronka champion there. Got it right in this in this uh, mm-hmm. article. Yeah. The, air, the aircraft was airborne approximately 80 meters near the end of the runway shortly after 2.30 p.m. when it lost altitude and crashed approximately... 100 meters from the south end of the runway. I never know if people want this included or not, but it's... Oh, I like, I like to see it. It was a story of his life. Mm-hmm. They, You know, you've heard the phrase, there are old pilots and bold pilots, but no old, bold pilots. <laughs> no, I haven't heard that, but I believe it. <laughs> right? I believe it. Hearing about my papa's crash in spite of pilot error doesn't change my love of flying. Maybe he made a mistake, maybe he didn't. But that passion for aviation lives on not only in me, but in my Aunt Lynn and cousin Jen and my cousin Christopher. And it's that same passion that led me to learn more about my great-grandfather, Ben Ketchison. So who are we talking about here? We're talking about your dad. My father. Uncle Raymond's in here too, but it starts with my dad. Now these are pictures... This is a, what do you call that plane? He was in a Sterling? Short Sterling. This is a navigator. It's not him. Okay. But this is what the Sterling looked like. Ben was a navigator in a Sterling bomber. So he wasn't a pilot? He was a pilot. Oh. But in that particular instance, he was a navigator. Oh, got it. Okay. Uh, In a Sterling bomber on glider towing operations over Holland on September 20th, 1944, when his aircraft was hit by a flak. Although the aircraft managed to return to base, Ben was di- died of wounds en route. Oh wow, so the airplane actually made it back. It limped back, and he he was the navigator that day, so he was at the back. Oh. And he was the only one hit. He was in the 299th Squadron. The crew of Sterling Aircraft Number Lima Kilo 118 were engaged in a glider towing operation over Holland when the aircraft was hit by flak. The aircraft returned safely to base, but P.O. Ketchison had been hit by the flak and died in the aircraft. Pilot officer navigator Ketchison is buried in the Brookwood Military Military Cemetery, walking Surly, England. I can show you pictures of that. It's in there. To talk about the short Sterling, I invited our resident Flightcast Warbird expert and my great friend and co-host, Mark Skyhawk Heavy Denton. Mark, the Royal Canadian Air Force used the short Sterling as a heavy bomber in the Second World War, and that was the airplane that my great-grandfather was in uh, that Nanny was just talking about. And yeah. it's what's 
amazing is that this airplane actually was able to limp back home after taking fire and uh, sadly uh, some of the uh, shrapnel or uh, what was it that she used there was a word there the flak right and that was actually right in um, one of the notices and I forgot to take a picture of that one but uh, it was right in one of the notices that was kind of looked like a newspaper clipping um, but to read some of these papers and to actually read the telegraph, it was an actual telegraph, uh, you know, with the word stop all the way through it, um, informing his family and his, specifically his mother uh, that he had passed away was just kind of a surreal thing. I hadn't seen that yet. The um, uh, KIA notice. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Canadian Pacific Telegraph's worldwide communications. Oh, this is his um, killed in action. Yeah, these are the telegrams, but this actually came first. So this is how people found out? Yeah, this was sent to the family. This says, um, uh, deeply regret... Oh, so what is this number? M That's not his number. His number is... Um, it says, it. Um, deeply regret to advise you that your husband, pilot officer Carl Benjamin Ketchison... J eight seven one three seven. That's it. Oh, was killed on active service overseas, September twentieth. Stop. Please accept my profound sympathy. Stop. Letter follows. RCAF casualties officer. And they would tell you when the funeral was taking place, but like anybody would be able to get over there and. I've never it. been there. I always wished I could. But I have good pictures. It's sobering for me, but, you know, I didn't know this guy. Um, and obviously without him, I, I wouldn't be around. Uh, and it's just interesting, all of the things that lead up to what ends up being our lives. My grandmother, Nanny, was supposed to be in that ferry flight that was uh, to, you know, deliver the Aranka Champ to wherever it was going, somewhere else in Ontario. Uh, and because she already had plans, she just didn't go. Otherwise, she would have. It's a sad story about what happened with your grandfather. I mean, that's something that you know nobody ever really likes to ever talk about. But, you know, at the same time, though, I wish he was available that we could talk to, you know. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that your grandmother, that mm -hmm. Nana is 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 willing to talk with us about this, you know, and, and to share what she remembers and, and to share the documents and, and the history with you. And if you think about it, 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 it says a lot about you and your, your passion for aviation, you know, uh, of, of where your passion comes from. Um, like, like with me, I've, I've said it so many times how it's, it's in our DNA. Mm -hmm. And that's that's obviously how things are with you, and and you and I have, have talked so much about um, about what had happened and when you got your tattoo um, and all of that and and just the passion and love that you feel for someone that, like you said, that you didn't even know. Yeah. But yet it's still so impactful, so meaningful to you as a person. And whether you realize it or not, where whether any of us realize it, things from from people in our past impact us as a person 
you know, years, decades down the road. Yeah. So it's, it's powerful, man. It's very powerful. <laughs> These are letters Uncle Raymond wrote home. Oh, wow. And I forget when this one says, what month. And in the letter, he said, the fighting was really, really horrendous and don't tell mother. He really? wrote this to Aunt Addie. Oh, he wrote it to Aunt Addie. That's mm -hmm. your... His sister, my dad's sister. Your aunt. You know, that's her on the piano with Uncle Stan. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he said, don't tell mother, but it's really bad. Let's talk about this airplane that he was uh, sometimes piloting, and in this case, obviously, was uh, navigating. Yeah. Um, this was uh, described as a heavy bomber, and what I found interesting and didn't know until I chatted with Nanny, a glider tug. And mm -hmm. uh, I got on the phone with you later and, and said, uh, hey, Mark, what's a glider tug? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and tell us, tell us about what kind of a mission he might've been on. Well, basically, um, which, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on any of this, but you know, it's, uh, it's stuff that I've just read about over the years, but, um, these gliders, um, were, were actually pretty huge and they were used to, um, to transport troops, um, you know, into the DZ or, you know, which is the drop zone. And, uh, they would be towed by, uh, larger aircraft, um, such as the, uh, the glider ops that your grandfather used to fly. Uh, they would tow these gliders and then <clears throat> they would jettison the, uh, the tow cable and they would glide in. Basically it was the best way I can describe it and how I picture it. It was more, uh, of the, the, uh, the stealth, um, capabilities, uh, of that, of that era. And right, these planes these are would, virtually making no noise. Yeah. Just, just the wind, um, just the wind over the wings and, uh, across the, uh, fuselage. And, you know, these planes carried the troops and, you know, they, the troops would actually deploy from this, uh, virtually silent, uh, aircraft as it, uh, glided into, um, into the front lines or wherever these, uh, these troops were actually deploying to, and, uh, they would be, uh, towed by the heavy bombers, uh, larger aircraft jettison the cable, and then they glide in. Now the pilot for these gliders, uh, man, I, I don't know how you would even I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that some of these guys were volunteers. I'm, I'm assuming uh, they were volunteers. Others were <laughs> uh, voluntold. But, you know, you, you fly an aircraft, you pilot an aircraft into a war zone where you have zero power whatsoever. You're relying on thermals to keep you in the air. And I'm willing to bet that some of these landing zones were less than ideal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and how would they recover uh, these aircraft? 
Oh, uh, uh, these I gliders think many of the times they just wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, uh, were they built strong enough to, you know, to carry the troops, but were disposable? Um, you know, were some of them uh, able to be reused? I mean, it would be great if we could get someone uh, on in the future that would have more knowledge of that. Why don't we um, put that on our list for Warbird yeah. Weekend? Yeah, we yeah. Can get some answers. Definitely. Um, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, I've seen the uh, I've seen the glider pilot wings uh, from World War II, uh, basically uh, similar to the aviator wings. It just has a big G in the middle of it. And um, you know, these guys, man, to know that you're flying into a war zone that you're going to be shot at once mm-hmm. they see you, um, if they saw you. And you really have no way of performing any kind of evasive maneuvers. Right. Were these situations uh, to where they would fly it in, basically just man the aircraft into that war zone or into that drop zone. And then that pilot was also one of the troopers. And as soon as they got in, everybody got out. You know, once they got into that drop zone, everybody was deployed. And then the pilot would jump out. And I mean, it, that's, that's what I'm wondering is the case for that. And then the aircraft would just fall over to somewhere else because I'm sure these were very inexpensive aircraft since there was no power plants whatsoever. Yeah. I just think. basic flight controls. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions there that I would love to have answered. Well, if anybody listening on the website or on YouTube wants to comment and have uh, real answers for us, that would be really cool to hear from you. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, this was, uh, as we said, a heavy bomber uh, glider tug, uh, and then at some point was replaced by the, uh, the Lancaster. As it's been said, more capable airplane like the Lancaster, and also the uh, uh, Hanley Page Halifax as well, yes, which yeah. was um, similar to both of these aircraft. The, the Lancaster and the Short Sterling were similar, very similar in size, and the Halifax was quite a bit longer. Yeah. Um, significantly longer. I mean, I've, when we just looked at that comparison chart uh, a little while ago, um, I mean, it's almost like the blueprint of the Sterling and the Lancaster line up almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a few meters difference. And and then, of course, the unmistakable Halifax just dwarfs both of them. Yeah. So just, just massive aircraft. I spent some time at the Warplane Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum a couple of years ago with the family, and there is a bomber parked in in this museum, which is basically a large hangar. And uh, I read the plaque, and it says it's the Lancaster, the Avril Lancaster. And so I'm telling my grandmother about this later, and she said, "Oh, that's the airplane that your uh, great grandfather flew." Do you know of any um, any of his the airplanes that he did fly? I was always just told about the Lancaster. Oh, oh, he flew the Lancaster. Yeah, that was right. the one they always told me about. Okay. And I only just found out from looking at these that it was the Sterling, about the Sterling that he was in that particular day. Right. And I'm sure they were, you know, qualified in both. Right. Um, once the uh, once the Lancaster came out. Well, and let's be honest, it's World War Two. A lot of these pilots probably were not qualified at some point or another. <laughs> like you said, they yeah. were voluntold. Um, exactly. 
But uh, yeah, so the idea for these things would would be that uh, they would deploy troops, uh, whether uh, whether they were uh, parachuters or gliders, glider parachuters or glider troops, paratroopers, paratroopers um, to the corners of the British Empire and then uh, support them with bombing while they stayed in the air. Um, and then we talked a little bit about um, flak. Yes. And that was a new one for me. That is yeah. uh, something like shrapnel, correct? Yeah, flak is, is basically um, similar to, to launching a, a grenade. A, um, a grenade into the air and then it explodes uh, at a certain altitude. And, you know, it basically sends shrapnel through anything that is around it. Whenever you watch these movies and, and you see the airplanes uh, flying uh, into a war zone, for example, the bombers flying into a drop zone uh, to their toward their targets, and you see this black plume of smoke around the airplane. Uh, and the planes, you know, shaken violently. That's the flak from the anti-aircraft uh, uh, weapons on the ground. And uh, that's what happens is it comes up and it explodes and uh, sends shrapnel in, you know, through the sheet metal, just penetrates it uh, through, you know, with a violent force. So it comes right through it, but uh, very, very powerful and massive stuff. Imagine the pilots piloting the aircraft that my great grandfather was in uh, were not having a good time getting that thing back home. Yeah, um, you know, she said that you know it was wounded, mm-hmm. obviously, and and this happened more times than not. Um, that aircraft, uh, the ones that were were still able to fly, um, even barely, uh, were able to make it back to the field, even though the aircraft was crippled. Um, damaged severely but these pilots still uh were able to manhandle these aircraft all the way back and you know and it's funny because when i was talking to the b-17 pilots that were out here um back a couple of months ago when i took matthew out there uh they said that it's it's an amazing aircraft that will uh and they said this about the b-29 as well that you just trim this plane and it'll it'll almost fly itself. Regardless, you know, after after being um, after being hit with all this flak and the damage to, uh, you know, you see these videos of these planes coming in. They they have no rudder. Some of them would have no tail fin. Um, you know, ailerons would be damaged or you know not not uh, they would be completely inoperable if they were even still on the aircraft. Uh, and, and it's amazing how these aircraft still manage to make it back to base and the strength and the concentration that it was required by these pilots, um, to do that. Cause it wasn't just, you know, flying a hundred miles up, drop some bombs and then fly back. I mean, we're right. talking hundreds and hundreds of miles to the target and then back mm-hmm. while you're also fending off, you know, enemy aircraft and still dealing with flak and all that. So, wow, that's, that's amazing in itself. Yeah. Uh, have you ever been somewhere to see uh, one of these airplanes at all, Mark? I have never to my recollection seen uh, a short Sterling or, um, 
or a Lancaster. Um, what about personally. a B-17? Oh, yeah, the B-17. Uh, like I said, when that one flew in here um, a couple months ago, um, the one that uh, I posted on the Instagram of the uh, Texas Raiders, uh, B-17. Um, I've seen that one. I've seen the Memphis Bell, uh, which the Bell has a tremendous story uh, behind it. Uh, probably one of the most famous B-17s from World War II. Um, and then, of course, the uh, B-29 Fifi. I've seen that one uh, several times, actually, mm-hmm. over the years. So just amazing, amazing aircraft. Uh, they are they are huge. And to there, I mean, and you got to think these things like aircraft today are built with carbon fiber and, and all this lightweight material. And these things are just solid steel and metal. And plus all the weight of the, uh, of the, um, armament that they're carrying the bombs and everything, um, to still get off the ground. It's, it's, it's a magnificent feat. You know, imagine flying a tailwheel aircraft with four engines. I can't imagine that would have been the easiest to land and take off. I can't even imagine flying a tailwheel with one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, that's, you know, that's still on my bucket list to get that endorsement. But yeah, I mean, um, and, 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 you know, shout out to, um, to Steve with, uh, flight chops. Um, when he did that, uh, video with, uh, Fifi. Yeah. Uh, if you remember how, (laughs) uh, the pilots of course are facing forward and the uh, the flight engineer is facing the rear, and the flight engineer is actually controlling the throttles for the pilots. It's crazy. It's crazy it the is. things that they had to learn in probably a very short period of time. Yeah, I mean, as a pilot, I, I don't know if <laughs> I, I can't even wrap my head around someone else controlling the throttles while I'm trying to land and especially in a windy condition. Yes. Taking you know, off is one thing. And even then you, you'd like to have your hand on the throttles, right? Oh, absolutely. But, uh, landing is another story. Yeah. You're, you're constantly having to work that throttle and, and, and the, and, you know, flight engineer is facing, facing the rear. He's right behind the captain and the first officer, but, uh, the two pilots, but he's still facing the rear. So he's not even seeing where they're going. So, and, you know, the, the communication was essential, um, on, you know, throttle settings and the prop pitch and, and all of those things that go into play. And, you know, one engine is, is bad enough, but to sit there and have to do one person doing four engines and not even seeing where he's going. And add to uh, that, you've been hit by flack and you have to try and make your way home. Yeah. So you're having to manhandle, um, this aircraft back plus you're constantly panning to you know look for enemy fighters and everything else i mean the things that go into your mind i mean you know you're and if you're going to make it back safely um then you do finally get the field in, in sight and then you know are you going to be able to land uh safely and and it's not just you on board as as you know, the commander of the aircraft, you, you've got an entire crew behind you yeah. that is relying on you uh, to get them back home to, you know, their family and friends. So, wow. I mean, the, these guys truly, in my opinion, just don't get enough 
credit for what they've gone through. And uh, it's it's truly amazing, truly amazing. There's Uncle Raymond. Okay. And this is also on River Street in front of the door that you I came in and out of, you know? No kidding. Mm-hmm. That's my grandmother. Wow. What a crazy time. He was a nice-looking dude, too, wasn't he? He was. Isn't it a wonder we're all so beautiful? Now no. I know why. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Should we sit on the patio for a bit? Okay. Now, I had an umbrella. It's in my trunk of my car. Do we need it? I haven't got anybody to put it up yet. Would you like me to put it up? If you can. many years ago. <laughs> Whew. Is that enough? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on this special 50th episode. Thanks also to Mark Denton for lending his aircraft expertise. Lastly, I want to again thank my nanny for sharing stories and memories from her past that have shaped not only her future, but my future and my children's as well. While we sat on her patio enjoying the sun setting over Georgian Bay, nanny and I talked about life's joys and regrets. While we agreed to look forward to the future, I'm hanging on to the one regret of not making time for this night sooner. That's our episode, and here's to 50 more. For more of FlightCast, please visit flightcast.audio. Thanks for listening, and happy landings.